We the People. We the People. Summer of 1787, 55 men gathered in Philadelphia to consider how to make the government of the United States more perfect. Over the course of five months, they argued, debated, considered, and rejected ideas, notions, and various systems. In the end, they created the Constitution of the United States, a document predicated on the idea that men can rule themselves by law. This is Constitution Thursday, a time when we look at the history, ideas, arguments, and interpretations of the Constitution, from its original creation to today, and how it affects our lives now. By December of 1880, Rutherford B. Hayes was... A lame duck. The election of 1880 had already been held. James Garfield had been elected. Hayes was on his way out. But he had one last task to do. And so he was getting ready to to carry out that task. By the way, let me say this up front about this particular episode of Constitution Thursday. In no way, shape, or form is anything I'm about to say in the next few minutes to be construed as support for or a denunciation of LDS theology. It's not what we're talking about here. Do not send me the email saying, but Dave, you don't understand. I don't care. This is strictly about the constitutional issues surrounding the issues of the second half of the 19th century. I don't care about the theology. I'm not LDS. They're not Jewish, so leave that out of it. If all you can focus on is the theological rightness or wrongness of this, you're not going to get anything out of it. So turn it off now. If you do send me one of those emails, you will be deleted. I will not read it, and you will be put in the spam filter. So just don't do that. Otherwise, you can email me at dave at the DaveBowmanShow.com or text me. 209565 Dave. As I said, by December of 1880, Rutherford B. Hayes was on his way out. He had literally accomplished almost nothing during his four years as presidency that he maybe stole. I mean, there are people that even today still insist that he stole the 1876 election from Samuel Tilden. I am not convinced that anything would have been different. In any way, shape, or form, the southern states would have still ignored the 15th Amendment. They made that clear. Tilden would have just 
he wouldn't even have paid lip service to the idea of it as Rutherford B. Hayes, at least on occasion, including on this particular day, December 6th, 1880, at least made an effort to pay lip service to the idea that the 15th Amendment should be applied. Tilden would not have done that. Hayes did do that, but he didn't do anything else for it. Four years of not getting anything accomplished. On this day, December 6th, 1880, he would send to Congress his State of the Union message. You might be surprised by that, or you might not be. State of the Union addresses are a relatively new phenomena. Prior to that, presidents just wrote a letter and sent it to Congress. And it would get published in newspapers and ignored, generally speaking. And it was a much more efficient way of doing it. And we didn't have to put up with all the clownery that goes on with today's States of the Union addresses. At any rate, in his message, he complained about the fact that civil service reform had not happened. He asked for some money to make it happen. Of course, he was leaving, so nobody was going to listen to that. He praised the economy, even though he had been badly bruised in the battles with Congress over the silver standard and, and, and those issues. They had stabilized things, but they weren't great. And his speech was roundly, and I do mean roundly panned. In some of the news reports I read, oh, they said things about his speech. It was, it was no original ideas. Uh, this, that. My favorite one came from a newspaper in Indiana that referred to his, referred to his, his, his message as somnolent. I love the way 1800s newspapers wrote. They were much more, much more eloquent than papers are today. And in essence, they basically said, your, your letter was so boring. Your message to Congress was so boring that people were falling asleep reading it. <laughs> they didn't even bother to print it in the paper. They just printed the high points and then called it somnolent, which was beautiful. But in the midst of all this, he, he took on something that was of huge issue to a lot of people in the country. Now, many of you know that Utah is a state. It's between Nevada and Wyoming, and it's no cure for boredom, but... It is where, according to the United States Navy anyway, I'm from. I lived there while I was in high school. I, my parents were moved to Ogden, Utah, and I grew up in, in Utah. It was, not to put too fine a point on it, a, a very unique experience, particularly if you do not belong to the LDS faith. It is an eye-opening experience if you do not. And I've talked about this before. It has had an influence on my views of things throughout my life. That said, when Utah in the, in the 1850s, when it was established as a territory, and Zachary Taylor, the president, appointed Brigham Young as a territorial governor, Utah laid claim to all of Nevada, all of what would become Utah, part of Wyoming, part of Colorado, and they had this dream that it was going to extend into New Mexico, all of Arizona, and the southern half of California, and they were going to call it the state of Deseret. They had flags made and everything else, and the whole nine yards was there. 
But of course, there was a problem with the whole thing. And the the reality is that, that Mr. Mr. Hayes would take on that problem. And of course, that problem started in 1852 when the LDS Church announced that it would, from hitherto forth, become amiable and, in fact, encourage the practice of bigamy or polygamy, polyamory, in support of its religious beliefs. Now, there was great fear that Utah had sent the territory of Utah had essentially become what was known as a theodemocracy. In other words, it was an American territory, but it had essentially become a theocracy under the LDS Church. And this was problematic. If you know anything about the history of the LDS Church, they've been chased out of Illinois, out of Missouri, all the way to Salt Lake City, what would eventually become Salt Lake City. It wasn't then. When they said, this is the place, and they settled there. For the record, Utah is quite beautiful, and it is strongly reminiscent, if you ever go there, and I don't know if you've ever been, uh, but if you ever go to Israel and you go to the Dead Sea area, especially in Gev, you will, in Getty, sorry, you will notice strong similarities in the, in the, the landscapes to the Salt Lake Valley. It's, it's remarkable. That was one of the things I noticed when I was over there. It was one of the first things I noticed was, wow, this looks just like the Salt Lake Valley. And it really does. Hence, it's many names that appeal back to that. In Utah, you have the Jordan River in Utah that flows from a freshwater lake to a dead salt lake, just like you have in Israel. There's, um, it's a remarkable thing. But there was this consideration, this, this deep concern about the establishment of a theodemocracy there. The church had so much power that it was essentially taking over everything, the courts, the school systems, the legal uh, professions. The church owned virtually everything. Yes, there was private property, but it wasn't it was almost all held by the church. There were there were struggles. There was a thing called the Mormon War, the Utah Wars, in which the United States Army actually tried to intervene in some of these things. The the the, the there was a lot of violence between Mormons and non-Mormons, and not all of it aimed at the LDS Church. A lot of it was the LDS Church aiming back. In fact, for those of you who have read it, a study in Scarlet by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the very first Sherlock Holmes story, actually revolves around much of the violence that was going on in Utah at the time. But in 1852... The LDS Church announced that it would support bigamy. A man by the name of Orson Pratt, who happened to be one of the leaders of the LDS Church, and again, I'm not going to go deep into who was who and what was what, because it doesn't really matter, but Orson Pratt was amongst the leadership of the LDS Church at that time, and he announced on August 28, 1852, that morning, that polygamy is constitutional. He announced that despite any laws, any of these uh, things that were problematic, he and the church had decided that polygamy was in fact constitutional and in fact could be carried out by members of the LDS church without concern about 
being arrested, thrown in jail, whatnot. Now, keep in mind, this is a little bit easier to say when you actually control all of those things in your state, in your theodemocracy. Later that afternoon, the second president of the LDS Church and the territorial governor of the state of Utah, uh, the territory of Utah, Brigham Young, announced that the doctrine which Orson Pratt discoursed upon this morning was the subject of revelation anterior to the death of Joseph Smith. That means before he died. Again, I love how they talk back in the 1800s. So much, so much more erudite than we are now. It is in opposition to what was received by a small minority of the world. But our people have for many years believed it, though it may not have been practiced by the elders. The original of this revelation has been burnt. He claimed in this speech, which I have only printed one sentence of, that Joseph Smith had received the revelation that bigamy, polygamy were to be practiced by the Mormons, and that for some reason, and he did not really go into it, Emma Smith, who was Brigham Young's, or I'm sorry, Joseph Smith's wife, first wife, had for some reason burned the copy that Joseph Smith had written down, or had had written down, of this revelation in favor of polygamy. Miss Smith, Mrs. Smith, just absolutely denied that. On her deathbed, she wrote, she said, no such thing as polygamy or spiritual wifery was taught publicly or privately before my husband's death that I have now or ever had any knowledge of. He had no other wife but me, nor did he, to my knowledge, ever have. Now, it's possible, possible that she was just saying something to put herself in the... I don't, we don't know. The problem with all of this stuff is that there is so much... Let's just call it soap opera in all of this, that you're really, you're really left wondering, an outside observer is really left wondering whether this... Whether, whether the Mormons of that era actually saw this as a religious duty or just an excuse for lasciviousness, a la King David. You, you found yourself wondering. I mean, it was really, really bizarre at times. The accusations of sexual misconduct that flew back and forth. And again, all of this stuff is in the history books. You can read it yourself. You don't need me to, to recite it for you. It's just titillating. And then again... Depending on how firm a believer you are, maybe it's true, maybe it isn't true. But it's accepted as historical fact. In response to this, actually, Pratt's argument was in response to what had been passed by Congress and signed by Abraham Lincoln, known as the Morrell Act. The Morrell Act was pretty simple. It banned bigamy in all U.S. territories. And that was pretty straightforward. It banned it church, of course, was, you know, they weren't accepting of that. And many in the church itself, many in the LDS church itself, were not convinced of the validity of the vision. In fact, at least one man, Brother Milton Musser, in Salt Lake City on July 10th, 1878, would say, if you can commit bigamy and insulting defiance of the national law because some vision that someone else received, well, this is not religious liberty, but a willful violation of American law, which is binding on all of us until declared unconstitutional by the courts. There was no 
homogenous acceptance of the concept of bigamy inside the church. There was a split in the church, there have been multiple splits in the LDS faith, as you know. But ultimately, the, the idea here was that bigamy, polyamory, all of that stuff was just flat out wrong, and it wasn't going to be allowed in the United States. Now, Lincoln had his hands full, as you can imagine, with the American Civil War. And in 1862, that war wasn't going swimmingly well for the Union. But here was this law that he signed banning bigamy. He managed to get word to Brigham Young, the territorial, still the territorial governor of Utah, and generally agreed that he would just sort of wink at the Morrell Act, the banning polygamy in the U.S. territories, if Brigham Young would make sure that the Mormons in Utah did nothing to interfere with the Union conduct of the war, conducting of the war. This was a, a major issue. You had telegraph wires. You had, you did have railroads. You didn't have the Intercontinental Railroad yet, but you had, you know, transportation lanes and that sort of thing going through there. And he was deeply concerned that the Mormon, there was a great deal of concern that Utah, the Mormons, would, if not outright join the Confederacy, which was unlikely because they were pretty much anti-slavery, which is odd given their theological position at the time. But not only were they not disposed to joining the Confederacy, but they weren't all that loyal to the Union either. And this was creating a great deal of stress and a, a great deal of angst amongst Union folks who were concerned that, well, what if Utah decides to go the other way? And indeed, a big part of Nevada becoming its own state. And remember that Nevada was technically part of Utah, the territory of Utah. And a big reason why Nevada was made a state was to kind of counter that balance between, between Utah and California and Utah and the other territories. There was, plus, that's where all the silver was. So there was this concept that they needed to secure that and make sure that they didn't go along there. That went through the Civil War, and there was indeed more violence and you know petty arguments and the likes of that. And bigamy in the state of Utah continued to be not just permissible, but not prosecuted by any way, shape, or form. This was not just being winked at, but again, because you had this theodemocracy where the LDS Church literally controlled the courts, the government, everything in the state of Utah, in the territory of Utah, that it was virtually impossible to to get anything there. But after the war, it started to really become an issue. And by 1879, in the height of... In the, the height of Rutherford B. Hayes's presidency, there was a need for a distraction. Things were not going well in the Reconstruction states, the Reconstructed states. Things were not going well with the railroad strikers. Things were not going swimmingly well with the economy. There was great argument over the silver, which of course was coming from the the, the state of Nevada, and. As often happens when 
stressful times come, people, governments, newspapers, look for a distraction. Find us something that we can actually feel good about. Many of you will remember the 1980, the year 1980, the, the invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union, the cancellation of the Olympics, the economic malaise that blanketed the nation. Not my word, Jimmy Carter's word. And in the midst of all that came a distraction. The miracle on ice. And the entire country, left, right, center, Republican, Democrat, black, white, didn't matter. Everybody was into hockey. Everybody loved Team USA. It's a good distraction, wasn't it? Didn't change anything in the, on the big scale of things, but at least we weren't talking about the other stuff. And bigamy, polygamy, and the LDS Church became that focal point, particularly during the administration of Rutherford B. Hayes. By now, Utah had really become a powerhouse because the, the, inter, the Transcontinental Railroad went through there, went through Ogden, where I live, Promontory Point. It, 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 it had become a real transportation communications hub, and it was still being run by the LDS Church. It was still being controlled by the theodemocracy of the LDS Church. And this was rubbing people wrong. It was clear that Utah wanted to be a state. They had designed state flags and everything else. They made it clear, we want to be a state. But the big issue was the LDS Church and, of course, its practice of polygamy. Its practice that somehow or another, the the practice was despicable to Americans. They needed to not just enforce the Morrell Act, but they needed to make it even stronger. And they began discussing legislation to that end. They began discussing things that would uh, make it stronger. And the LDS Church's reaction to this was not to give in, not to say, oh, yeah, you're right, We're, we, we got to pull back. You know, it wasn't any of that stuff. It was, in fact, to say, no, this is constitutional, it's our religious duty, and... We're going to create, that so often happens, a test case. A guy by the name of Reynolds, who happened to be a secretary to the uh, president of the church and so forth and so on. Again, I'm not going to go into all that detail. He decide, they, they decide that he will be the test case, and so he intentionally takes yet another wife, in addition to all the other ones that he may have already had, gets himself arrested, gets himself convicted of bigamy, and appeals it, it goes all the way to the United States Supreme Court. After the Territorial Court of Utah says, yes, your conviction is valid under the Morrell Act, and we sentence you to punishment. The court had to look at some things, and there were a, there were a whole lot of arguments in this that had to do with his grand jury. There was actually a, a, a federal law that said a grand jury had to have 16. There was a Utah law that said it had to have 15. And guess how many were on his thing? Fifteen. So even though he appealed it as a federal violation, it wasn't because the court ruled that, well, no, you guys passed law that said 15. So guess what? You only get 15. The thrust of his argument, though, was that bigamy was a religious duty 
for the LDS Church. It was a religious thing that had, I'm trying to think of the word, mandatory religious thing that happened to Kurt because he was a loyal and true believer of the LDS faith. And despite Emma Smith's refutation of the doctrine of, of bigamy, spiritual wifery, he believed in it and therefore he should be allowed to do this as constitutional. The court would ultimately rule that bigamy, polygamy, is not a free exercise under the First Amendment. It is not a free exercise of religion. Well, that's going to put some uh, that's going to put some interesting spins on things, isn't it? What is the limit of free exercise? If if you can't marry whoever you want, the court ruled that bigamy was not a free exercise of the LDS faith. They noted that bigamy bans dated back to the reign of King James I of England, upon whose laws our bigamy laws were based. Therefore, it was historical. And they said this, that bigamy and polygamy were the, quote, odious practice of Asiatic and African peoples, unquote. Now remember, in the middle of all this, we are desperately trying to distract ourselves from the fact that the South, Southern states, are walking all over, spitting upon, as Carter Glass would say, the 15th Amendment protections for African American citizens. The LDS Church at that time banned black Americans, banned black people in general, from holding its priesthood. And it has been noted by some was one of the more racist churches in existence at that time. And so the court's response to this was to basically accuse them of doing the practices of Asiatic and African peoples, which we don't like. The legislative powers of the government, they said, reach to actions only and not to opinions. doesn't matter that your opinion is that Joseph Smith was right and that spiritual wifery and bigamy were just fine and dandy for the LDS person. We can ban it because it only goes to the actions. And this, of course, was the heart of the matter. The legislative powers of government reach actions only and not opinions. You can think whatever you want, but you can't necessarily do whatever you want. To permit this, they said, to permit bigamy, polygamy, would be to make the professed doctrines of a religious belief superior to the law of the land, and in effect, to permit every citizen to become a law unto himself. Now, I think if you consider that for a moment, you can kind of see the logic of that to some degree, can you not? If every person was permitted to do whatever they said their religious beliefs were, and they outweigh the law of the land, well, where does that end? Does it end with, I don't know, Mormons having eight wives? Or does it end with gay marriage? Or does it end with people marrying trees? Or does it end with people marrying children? Or does it end with people sacrificing other people because they want to, you know, appease their their particular deity? This is what the court found itself wrestling with and decided that, nope, 
It doesn't matter what you think. We can we cannot tell you what to think. We cannot tell you what to believe. Nor can we legislate that. But we can tell you what you can and can't do insofar as that goes. Kind of flies in the face of some of the things that we're dealing with now constitutionally as far as freedom of worship, doesn't it? Exercise. The New York Times was excited by this. Similarly, they said on January 8, 1879, similarly, a sect which should pretend or believe that incest, infanticide, and murder... Wait, what? Were we even talking about that? Were we even talking about incest, infanticide, and murder? Well, (laughs) it's called playing the man, not the ball. There was a common belief in that era that the purposes of bigamy were both lascivious, lustful, and they were designed to allow certain Mormons to get away with certain crimes. Because remember that a wife cannot testify against her husband, right? It's one of, what do they call that, spousal something or other, spousal, anyway, the wife can't be compelled to testify against her husband. So, marry a gal, murder her, whatever, and she can't testify against you. Incest. Does it matter who I marry? Children? Well, what if we only want boys or only want girls or whatever? All of these things were widely believed to be issues. So much so that the New York Times noted that a sect which should pretend or believe that incest, infanticide, and murder was to be a divinely appointed ordinance to be observed under certain conditions could set up that enforcement of the common law as against either the either of these practices was an invasion of the rights of conscience. The, the New York Times, let me summarize for you there. The summarize of that is that the, the, the New York Times was happy that the court ruled against Mr. Reynolds and, in fact, upheld his conviction under the bigamy law, the Morrell Act, and was very happy to see that the government was finally, at some level, at least one branch of government, was finally deciding to crack down on the LDS church. This was followed, of course, because now all of a sudden it seemed legit. This was followed in 1882 by the Edmonds Act. Senator Edmonds Act was to make bigamy a felony offense. And this, of course, post, uh, post Hayes' comments. It, defined, it also defined cohabitation, because now that the Reynolds case had been decided, one of the things that the Mormons started doing was, well, we're not married, we're just living together. With, you know, five women, six women, ten women, whatever. <laughs> Again, I... too easy of a joke, but I had a hard enough time keeping one wife happy. I don't know how you could do it with more than that. But it defined cohabitation as bigamy as well. The problem was it was being criticized because of its enforcement as ex post facto. In other words, they were making crimes that did not exist, cohabitation, making it a crime that did not exist when this whole thing started. Well, good news is, the Supreme Court would rule that it was not ex post facto and because you're not legally married. You are living together. There you go. In 1888, the Edmonds Act was amended and renamed the Edmonds-Tucker Act, and this is where it really gets to the road. In 1887, the Edmonds-Tucker Act disincorporated the LDS Church. 
Now, the reason for this, of course, was that the church owned every freaking thing in Utah and held all of the offices under the United States. And, of course, that was a problem. So they disincorporated the LDS church, made them give all their holdings and money and everything else to the government. They then required that anyone who was under an office of trust of the United States would take an anti-polygamy oath. Then they would require marriage licenses. You ever wonder why you had to get a marriage license in the United States of America? There's why. Because with marriage licenses, now there's a paper trail that they can prove who is married to whom. And that had been an issue prior to that, because before they could say, well, no, I'm not married to him. Or maybe, as Emma Smith said, they can deny anything. But now there's a paper trail. Then it did two things that really, I don't know, kind of did some damage here. They disenfranchised women in Utah. Women in Utah had had the vote. And, of course, that was because the LD, most of them were LDS. And it was a good way to make sure that the LDS office holders were reelected over and over again. It was possible, particularly because of the railroads, that there could be enough men in the state of Utah who are not LDS to vote for somebody else. But by making women able to vote, they essentially nullified the votes of non-Mormon people in Utah. So they disenfranchised the women in Utah and made it mm, a little more fair? Question mark. And, of course, they removed that common law spousal privilege. Now a wife could be forced to testify against her husband. And that, of course, was a big deal. All of this came about because Hayes, in his State of the Union address on December 6, 1879, had said the Mormon sectarian organization, which upholds polygamy, has the whole power and ma- of making and executing the local legislation of the territory. By its control of the grand and pettit juries, it possesses large influence over the administration of justice, exercising of the heads of this sect do, the local political power of the territory, they are able to make effective their hostility to the law of Congress on the subject of polygamy. And in fact, they do prevent its enforcement. All of this caused the state, the, the government then, to begin to crack down on the Mormons. And, and once Reynolds was decided, and once it was upheld that it was not ex post facto, and once it was held that all of these things were constitutional under the Constitution of the United States by the Supreme Court, well, things began to change. I guess you could say, in Utah. For the Republicans in the 1880s, 1890s, for the 16 years between Hayes' final State of the Union speech and when Utah would finally become a state, during that 16 years, the Republicans saw this fight against polygamy and bigamy and cohabitation, polyamory, as a moralistic focus And that moralistic focus could become their speaking platform 
it could become what they talked about in their newspapers, what they talked about at their dinner parties, instead of talking about, hey, this 15th Amendment thing. Remember that? Remember how we were going to protect African-Americans, freedmen who had been slaves and now weren't? Remember how we were going to do all that? Well, sorry, we got bigger things to do right now. We've got the LDS church we've got to deal with. And by God, they did. For the Bourbon Democrats of that era, it was a golden gift. It was a, it was a fantastic redirect away from any discussion whatsoever of Jim Crow. The Mormons and their reticence towards accepting African Americans into their church and into their territory was just a little bit of icing on the cake. It was just a little bit of, well, you know, we kind of have some affinity towards these guys. But at the same time, as long as we're talking about all of this stuff, well, you know, then we don't have to worry about the 15th Amendment. We don't have to worry about Jim Crow. We don't have to talk about those things. Because those Mormons, they're controlling the state of Utah. And we've got or the territory of Utah. Sorry, I keep calling it state, but it's a territory at this point. And some of those discussions, by the way, continue even today in Utah. You'd be amazed at how much the influence the church has and how much how much of that influence is seen as under the table or under underhanded or whatever, or almost almost sort of subtextual, institutional, structural, institutional LDSism in Utah is still seen. You'd be amazed at how much people still believe that. But all of this raised serious questions about religious exercise and self-government. After all, Hayes had made it a cornerstone of his presidency that he was going to allow states and territories to self-govern. Well, here's the state of territory of Utah wanting to self-govern by allowing bigamy. Only we say no to that. It's a strange event and it's a strange confluence of of historical elements but it was a huge distraction it was a massive distraction to the nation and meanwhile the abuses of the of the jim crow era were just ramping up nobody cared those mormons might have more than one wife it's kind of the problem by the way reynolds appealed to to Jefferson's statement about, what do I care if my neighbor has one God or 20s? It doesn't do me any harm. Well, but he also said, conscience thought is one thing, but action is another. In 1978, in what would become an odd coincidence, the Edmonds-Tucker Act was actually repealed. So all of those things that the Edmonds-Tucker Act did disincorporating the LDS church, requiring it. By the way, that was that was repealed in the early part of the uh, the second half of the century. Requiring anti-polygamy oath, requiring marriage licenses, disenfranchising women, and removing common law spousal. All those things that it did were repealed in 1978, which, by the way, in October of 1978, is when the, the LDS church president, a guy by the name of Spencer Kimball, said that he had a revelation much as Joseph Smith had had a revelation, he had a revelation saying that African-Americans should be allowed to have the priesthood. 
And so it became the official position of the church in 1978 that they would allow to do this. This went along with the revelation that in 1890 they put out saying, yes, we hereby officially disavow polygamy and bigamy. We accede to the United States rules and thus we're allowed to become a state in, in 1896. It's remarkable to me because this whole shooting match has become an issue again in some ways. I mean, you think back to those Mormon families that were bigamist and polygamist and the likes of that, and you wonder to yourself, was all this bad stuff really going on, or were those just occasional cases? Who knows? It became even bigger in the early 2000s when a TV show on HBO called Big Love, starring uh, Bill Paxton, became a thing. I will tell you that I was a big fan of the show. I, I not only watched it, but eventually I owned the DVDs. There is some weird fascination that we have this, I don't know, it's, it's almost a, I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like a, like a perverse fantasy that we all have with this idea of bigamy, this idea that somehow or another, there must be something weird going on there and it's interesting to us. It's distracting to us. And indeed, even today on television, you can watch multiple shows now that deal with bigamy, including, I don't even know the name of this one, but it's the one where the guy's got four wives or five wives or whatever and lives in Nevada or wherever it is he lives. And my wife, for some reason, is just absolutely fascinated with this show. And I have no idea why. I don't, I, I mean, I don't know what she sees in it. I don't particularly see anything in this one, but Big Love I did, but this one I don't. But this this fascination with this is amazing because polyamory has become nouveau. I mean, it really has become popular in, in this idea nowadays. What do we got? We got, you know, three threesome, three threesome weapon weddings. What do they call that? I don't. There's a name for it. Thruples, thruples, and. We have re renewed debates over whether or not personal conscience issues can become legitimately, can, can they be banned? Can pedophilia be banned? It is now because we see it as an odious practice. But what happens if, what happens if that becomes more mainstream? Under the political cover of the struggle in Utah back in those days, under that political cover, black citizens in the South and indeed around the nation were further disenfranchised and discriminated against. Court rulings that were against the LDS church were, were then applied to black citizens in those areas. Well, look, court says you can't do that. <laughs> and it became yet another way to disenfranchise, to discriminate against, and to suppress citizens of this country across the board it doesn't really matter if you agree with the mormon position on on this stuff or not it really doesn't the only thing we can actually agree on at the end of the day is that polyamory is wrong why is it wrong well because it's either multi-amory or polyphilia you can't mix greek and latin roots it can't be polyamory 
even though we address it as such, because that's not really a word, even though we all say it. But it was a ruling, and it was part of this country a long time ago when we decided that we were going to start suppressing people's rights. And in doing so, we managed to uh, perhaps, I guess, in a way, not do what we intended to do, which was get the LDS church out of control in Utah. And in fact, what we ended up doing was making it pretty much more discrimination and more suppression. 